Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Tubi's Adam Lewinson about how the Fox-owned streamer is growing its original slate and facing up to the US writer's strike. From 11th Hours, Paula Cuddy and Eve Gutierrez about new thriller The Killing Kind, destined via Sony for this year's LA screenings. And from ITV Studios' Julie Meldall-Johnson, one of the speakers at C21's Content LA next week, about the company's interests in Australia after the acquisition of Lingo Pictures. It's been a busy few months for US AVOD platform Tubi, with founder Farhad Masoudi leaving as parent company Fox Corporation established new business unit Tubi Media Group under its former chief technology officer Paul Cheeseborough. Tubi also recently became Nielsen rated in the US, meaning its streaming market share is now officially quantifiable for the first time, with figures currently putting it above Paramount's Pluto TV and on a par with NBC Universal's Peacock. On the ground at Series Fest in Denver, Chief Content Officer Adam Lewinson spoke with Jordan Pinto about expanding the platform's audience, potential disruption posed by the US writers' strike, and what the creation of the 2B Media Group means moving forwards. So I'm at Series Fest with 2B's Chief Content Officer Adam Lewinson. Uh, Adam, how are you doing today? Great. Jordan, always great to see you. Happy to be here in Denver. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks uh, so much for making a bit of time for me. Of course. Um, I'm going to rattle off some of the 2B uh, news announcements over the past few months because there have been quite a few. Um, I think most recently was the formation of um, 2B Media Group, which is a kind of a, a new group within parent company Fox that will house uh, 2B streaming operations. Uh, also the startup Credible, Blockchain Creative Labs, and then some of Fox's wider um, digital assets as well. I think a very interesting film announcement was The Thicket, a feature starring Game of Thrones' Peter Dinklage. Uh, also just on the fast front, you did an interesting deal with uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, where about 200 of their properties are now being carried, I think, across 14 um, fast channels, uh, about 200 different titles. Uh, and then somewhere in between there as well, there were reports about two $2 billion takeover offers from uh, different companies. So it sounds like it's been, it's been a busy and exciting time. Um, let's start with the programming side of things. Um, yeah, could you maybe talk a bit about um, where the programming strategy sits, uh, sits today? It feels like the, you're starting to take some, some bigger swings, perhaps, with some of the programming, like the Peter Dinklage um, feature film. Um, yeah, if you could t- talk to me about it. Sure, happy to. Yeah, it, it's obviously been a very busy time and, and a, an exciting time. And as you know, I've been at this for some time. I've been with 2B for almost six years, getting close to it. And um, we've certainly been growing very quickly, especially recently, uh, viewership up and uh, to believe it's now 64 million monthly active users. Um, And uh, so really deepening our connection with viewers. And our programming strategy really hasn't changed. Uh, It's just that it's evolved as our business has evolved. So really our focus is still on these rabbit holes. If you happen to see one of our uh, Super Bowl commercials with the rabbit, the idea is people are typically not watching the same piece of content at the same time anymore. For sure, the Super Bowl, right, live television, sometimes big uh, you know, water cooler type TV shows like The Mass Singer, where if you don't see it live, it's going to be spoiled for you on social media. 
So those types of things exist and will continue to, but for everything else, we're all watching different things. So what we do with Tubi is now we have this massive library of 50,000 titles and using personalization tools to really just customize the viewer's experience and get them engaged in whatever it is that they want to watch and then a deep rabbit hole of engagement. So that's always been our strategy. It has not changed. It's just been able to expand over time. And now, uh, you know, now we're far and away the largest and the fastest growing of the fast services. We're now Nielsen rated, so uh, Nielsen rates us as uh, 1% of all television viewings. So that's not just streaming, that is everything, including linear. And, uh, and we keep growing. So you mentioned something like The Thicket. So that is uh, moving, as you say, starring uh, Peter Dinklage, a passion project of his. Also, Juliette Lewis, um, really stellar cast, phenomenal script. It's a, it's a Western, uh, a dark thriller. Uh, we wrapped production on that in Alberta a couple of months ago. And uh, so more on that to come soon. We have another movie coming up shortly with Harvey Keitel called Spread. So part of our strategy is always we've been a part of the independent film community. And for obvious reasons, which I'm happy to get into in terms of where the theatrical business is at, uh, it's harder and harder for indie films to get seen. So we've always been a home for indie film. And independent films can have a tremendous audience on Tubi. We acquire a lot, and now we're expanding by making even more and a, and a platform, because given these rabbit holes and how we do, we know that for a movie like The Thicket, we know the audience who's going to be interested in that film. We can target this film for them and, and help the movie find its audience. And so as we do that, right, the flywheel effect of the business just allows us to take some bigger swings. Yeah. Um, just going back to the, the point about Nielsen and being Nielsen rated, how, how recently did the, did the Nielsen rating um, I believe that was two months ago. Okay. And the report comes out monthly. Right. Um, how important has that been to, because as you said, it's, you know, 1% of all viewership is Tubi. How, how important has that been to kind of quantify, you know, the slice of the market that Tubi as, as you know, as the, you know, the AVOD player in the US market, how important has that been to, you know, put a number on it and for you to be able to say, this is the slice of the market that we yeah. have? Well, our, we've always done things differently. So most streaming platforms reach critical mass through having these big, buzzy shows, right? So you can think about the early days of Netflix with House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, etc. Uh, or even more recently, let's say Hulu, before and after Handmaid's Tale, right? That show was, was very significant for their growth. That hasn't been our strategy. So we've been able to reach critical mass by doing it our own way, which sometimes requires a bit more explanation. Right? So certainly, uh, being Nielsen rated, being 1% of television viewing is, a, is an important point of validation of our strategy. Uh, but then our year-over-year our -year growth, it tells its own story as well, and, and how we keep growing and growing. And the other piece of it, too, our audience is significantly younger uh, than really most audiences across television. Our median age is 39, uh, a little over a third of our viewers uh, are in that 18 to 34 demo. 
So finding these younger viewers and making them deeply engaged um, has been one of our strengths. And also, you know, half of our viewers identify as multicultural. So also telling the story about the audience that we've been amassing and engaging with over time. So all of these data points really have helped roll up to this bigger story. And then the Super Bowl spots, I think, really helped you know, not just amplify our message, but also really to, to show the personality behind the platform. Right? It's hard sometimes for a platform to have a personality, but you know, we have a lot of weird content. And we're comfortable leaning into that weird content because if that's what people want to watch, here you go. Conversely, you know, on Tubi this month, you want to watch the Hunger Games movies? They're on Tubi. You want to watch Andrew Garfield as, you know, The Amazing Spider-Man? It's on Tubi. You want to watch Bohemian Rhapsody? It's on Tubi. Um, and, uh, you know, the Warner Brothers shows that uh, we can talk more about, like Westworld, is on Tubi. So depending on what you want to watch, we've got those deep rabbit holes and so really just helping to further explain that story has been really helpful yeah um, I get the sense and you can tell me if I'm wrong um, that the the, a, the older AVOD services are becoming increasingly important as we get to this time of year when you have the upfronts and the LA screenings and some of the new shows have been rolled out um, from the Tubi side of the equation I, I'm assuming you you agree that, that the AVODs are becoming more important but um, yeah how, how have you seen that kind of shift yeah, well, I've so before Tubi, I was at Crackle, early days of Crackle, and it was still at uh, at Sony. So I've been, and then before that, I was in Basic Cable. So I've been on the ad-supported side uh, for quite a quite a few years. Ultimately, we're just talking about television, and specifically, we're talking about ad-supported television. And what I've always known is that the past, present, and future of television is predominantly free and ad-supported. And our vision of the future is that it's an on-demand environment. And so it's been very gratifying to see how our category has really been blossoming the past couple of years. But it all makes sense. You know, if you look at the disruption that technology caused with the advent of streaming, the initial point of view was essentially the pay model was going to take over. Because SVOD, you know, subscription streaming services, it's essentially the pay TV model, which historically has been 10, maybe 15% of the ecosystem. And the perception has been that it was going to be flipped on its head. But I always knew, and we always knew on the 2B side, that that perception eventually reality would set in, like gravity will take hold. And ultimately, viewers globally are cost conscious. They've always been comfortable with the idea of free ad-supported television, and you know, and a subset has been very comfortable with the pay model to get some of these elite shows that they must have that are very expensive, and so need to be monetized in its own in its own way. So just seeing those trends escalate, I want to say two years ago I started to say this is the year of Avod, <laughs> and uh, fortunately it was the beginning of this ramp up. But now I feel like this is a category that has quickly started to mature and increasingly we're just a very important part of the TV ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what I don't know to what degree you're allowed to talk about things that might be planned for the, the upfronts mm -hmm. and the LA screenings. Uh, are you able to give us a preview at, at all? Um, the only thing I can share at this point is we're just gonna be continuing to tell our story. 
Uh, that I think is the the most important thing during the during the upfront process, right? We're not in the, the LA screening side in terms of selling shows. Right? I know that's obviously a very important part of the thing. We'll be a buyer as opposed to a seller, so we won't be presenting uh, during LA screenings. But um, yeah, we're going to keep telling our story uh, in our own unique way. More on that very soon. The formation of the 2B Media Group. Yeah. Um, Will that have any kind of material impact on, on either the programming strategy or, or how Tubi, the service, fits into either the Tubi Media Group or the broader Fox uh, Entertainment por or the Fox portfolio? Yeah. Well, it's a very exciting time, certainly. So Fox acquired us three years ago. And um, and uh, on the exec team, I was the only one who previously was at Fox, because I was at FX for a number of years when that was a, a Fox entity. Um, so I've always sort of had Fox in my DNA and love working on the Fox lot in Los Angeles. We're there now, or our offices are there now in Los Angeles. So to be media group under Paul Cheesebro. So um, we've been organized under Paul for a few years now. He's a wonderful executive, smart and strategic, and um, really just a deep understanding of our business. So Tubi Media Group really elevates Tubi uh, within Fox Corporation, right? We're, we're a pillar up there with Fox News, Fox Sports, Fox Entertainment, and the Fox Stations Group so the, as the core pillars as opposed to being tucked under another division. And uh, obviously, it's it's validation of our growth and the confidence that Lachlan and the exec team have uh, in Tubi, which is very gratifying. And then, obviously, so much of any platform business is the tech side. Obviously, I represent the content side, uh, but uh, working so closely with our technology teams, it's such an important driver to our success. Right? We, we walk hand in hand together. And so under Paul's leadership, because he's been in charge of digital for some time, it's just a smart realignment of the digital strategies. And then an interesting piece of it is AdRise, which is a pillar of this new Tubi uh, Media Group. So before my time, Tubi was launched as AdRise. I don't know if you're familiar with this. That was the original name. And it was essentially building an ad tech platform and what a white labeling solution for third parties who wanted to run an, an AVOD app could use AdRise to power the technology and the ad sales engine to drive revenue. AdRise at some point pivoted and became Tubi, and then I joined a bit after that. And so now it's, it's bringing that business back into the fold in an exciting way. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, it's really a, a great realignment and, and an affirmation of, of how well we've been doing and uh, and how much the Fox leadership team has been a believer in Tubi. Mm -hmm. um, are there any upcoming shows that are soon to be released in the in the next few months that um, that you would like to highlight at, on the, at, at this time, or like are there any are there any big shows that are coming down the pipes? And I mean ones that have been announced because I know I know there are ones that you can't you can't tell me about. Perhaps a few. Uh, yeah, we, we've just come off of a few things. Uh, so, just broadly, um, our, our Tubi Originals strategy 
only about, I guess we're getting close to two years, so it hasn't been all that long. We're now past 100 originals. Is that released or? Released. Released. Right. released um, with obviously more in the queue. And we've been um, mostly producing scripted movies, um, documentaries, reality series, uh, and scripted animation thus far. With, uh, with more to come in the queue. And most recently, we had a movie that we launched, um, which was with Banerjee um, and Guna uh, Murray, the producers of the Kardashians series, called Dead Hot with Vanessa Hudgens. Sort of a pseudo-documentary um, that did quite well, and, and Vanessa supported it a lot. So we have a lot of those really interesting, unique, noisy types of uh, events. Uh, coming up very soon, next month, is a movie called Cinnamon, which is in partnership with Village Roadshow uh, and the Content Cartel, which has had, a, I don't know if you're an NBA fan, but uh, Kevin Garnett, one of the all-time greats. They've started uh, a, a label of movies called Black Noir, which is essentially taking some of the tropes of what used to be black exploitation films back in the 1970s, which were genre movies that, on the positive side, have representation, but on the negative side, especially back in the 1970s, stereotypes and it, uh, you know, it, it mixed bag, right? So put it through today's lens, it's telling genre movies from black filmmakers with a black cast. First movie's called Cinnamon. Uh, the cast includes Pam Greer and um, Damon Wayans. And it's a phenomenal crime action movie uh, that is premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival. And uh, then it'll be on Tubi later on in June. So we're very excited about that movie. I've mentioned a few other movies coming up. I can mention we have uh, an animated series that we have previously announced. Sadly, animation takes such a long time, so this won't be on the, on the horizon quickly, uh, but is from Tom DeLonge, uh, who is the front man of Blink-182. This comes from his mind, and um, yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with the Cocaine Bear story. This is sort of like that, but what if some bears discovered some cocaine, tried it, and decided to sell it, and it's called Breaking Bear. <laughs> so it's a very fun, obviously, comedy, um, but it really is riffing on all of the gangster, crime, drama, tropes, Scorsese movies that you can think of about this family of bears who become drug dealers. Uh, so we've been working furiously on that and we're, we're very excited about that. I think in terms of what's coming up quickly, that's all that's been announced. That sounds great. Um, yeah, does, anything else you'd like to add about Tubi? Anything else that's important about the, the 2B story in, in May of 2023? Yeah, I'll just say just a few more data points on, on how we've been growing. Um, our ad revenue is up 25% year over year. The last fiscal quarter that we reported on, which is our fiscal Q2, uh, was our highest, had our highest quarterly viewership ever, viewership up 44%. And in 2022, 5 billion hours of television streamed. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of eyeballs, yeah. right? 
and um, you know, we're going to continue to just double down and keep doing what we're what we've been doing, and just lean into this own just our own unique way of of getting into the uh, you know into the streaming ecosystem in a very very meaningful way, and um, you know obviously this is a, a such a challenging time in the industry for a whole host of reasons. And boy, if you look at some of these quarterly earnings, it's um, it, it's it's tough right now. And here we are at Series Fest, where the average scripted television series it's hard to make. And then it's also very hard to monetize. So there's a lot of challenges facing our business. I will say, however, that we've we've always had a very cost-conscious strategy very efficient in how we approach these uh, things, including you know, developing and producing our originals. So there is a different way of being successful in the streaming wars. It's not a template. And just looking at how the vision of how these it's supposed to work, right, has, has turned into a lot of massive losses, uh, which hopefully will be investment, right? We need a healthy ecosystem with lots of streamers across SVOD and, and AVOD. And uh, so having a healthy ecosystem is really important. But with that, like our strategy has been working, we're just gonna keep doing it. Yeah. Just one follow-up, does much of what you have coming up in the next few months, is, 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 any, is much of it affected by the w, WGA strike? Like could it disrupt the pipeline a lot, a little, mm, yeah. unsure? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, um, well, here, I'll share with you, Jordan, something I don't talk about too often, which is I actually started out my career as a writer. Oh, I did not know that. Uh, and I was a screenwriting fellow at the AFI, American Film Institute. And so I know what it's like to sit alone in a room and try to fill up a blank page. And then the harder part, try to make a living from that. It's not easy. By the way, I wasn't very successful as a writer, so here I am <laughs> as an executive. Uh, all's well that ends well. But look, I love working with writers, and uh, it's one of my favorite parts of, of the business. And obviously, you know, writers are incredibly important to this ecosystem. Uh, so the other side of it is the business is quite challenged for all the reasons that I just mentioned. And uh, so there's a lot of very important issues that need to be addressed. You know, there, there are some consequences too from you know, what John Landgraf talks about with peak TV and too much television, well that does have an economic impact where there's so much television that people aren't viewing it and therefore it's not being monetized and everybody you know, wants to make a living. So lots and lots of tough challenges. Uh, short term, no impact for us. Uh, we certainly have a lot of content in the queue and a lot of content that's already been produced and or acquired. And uh, look, we have 50,000 titles. We certainly have lots of content to engage our viewers with, but you know, certainly short term, I uh, feel very confident in our pipeline of, of new content to add to that ecosystem. And we're very heavily into the unscripted business as well. That's, of course, not interrupted. So we'll, we'll see how long the strike lasts. Hopefully it will be short and relatively painless for everybody involved, and we'll get back to business. Uh, so, yeah, for now, 
I think uh, we're, we're well equipped to ride it out, but uh, certainly my heart goes out to the writers, and uh, yet I'm very mindful of the macro issues at play, and so it'll, it'll play out over the summer. Sony Pictures Television-owned 11th-hour films, maker of series including Foil's War, Alex Ryder and a new take on Ian Rankin's Rebus, picked up rights to crime suspense thriller The Killing Kind by Irish author Jane Casey two years ago. Paramount Plus subsequently ordered the series as one of its first UK original dramas and the show is now heading into post-production, with Sony taking the title to this year's LA screenings to present it to international buyers. 11th Hour creative director Paula Cuddy and executive producer Eve Gutierrez spoke to Michael Pickard about their approach to adapting the novel and the challenges currently facing UK producers. Thank you both for joining us. I mean, just give us a bit of an update. Where is The Killing Kind? I know you, you're, you're shooting at the moment or you have been shooting. So, so how is it all progressing? Uh, actually, we just wrapped production about uh, just over a week ago, um, which we've been shooting in Bristol and in London. Um, it was quite an intensive shoot. Um, Emma Appleton, uh, our lead uh, member of cast, literally appears in every scene. So for her, it was incredibly... Uh, tiring but performance wise she did something really special and we are now uh, into post-production which is very exciting Paula and I um, we just uh, locked the cut of episode 2 um, and yeah we're getting some great feedback so far so that's really exciting and very exciting that it's heading obviously to the LA screenings yeah I mean, when you pick up a project like this is it is it British first British audience first or are you, are you something like the LA screenings, is that kind of on your radar and you're thinking now about a global audience who might want to tune in? I think that first and foremost, it always starts for us with falling in love with a story and that's where it has to begin. So I think what's brilliant about the book is you've got a fantastic female protagonist who's a defence barrister and she defends a man who is up on a stalking harassment charge. She wins the case, gets him acquitted and gets too close to him. And her world implodes. And I think just as a jumping off point, I mean, hopefully even when I've just outlined it there, you know, you can feel that that's tantalising and exciting. And the great things about great stories is we like to, you know, munch a lot of popcorn in 11th hour films and uh, think directly or indirectly we could go on that journey ourselves. And that it can be an out and out roller coaster ride of a thriller. Um, so that's really what draws us in. Definitely. And then, as you mentioned, this is based on a book by Jane Casey. And, and as I understand it, you you sort of swooped in quite quickly and, and picked it up just as it was being published, I think. But I imagine those conversations were happening for a little while. I mean, what was your, uh, you know, your relationship then with the manuscript? And, and how did you kind of, how did it kind of fall into your hands? And, and what was it that you, as you just sort of leaned into, what was it that you enjoyed about the novel that you thought would make a great TV show? Yeah, because as the creative director and even just a moment ago I was just telling Eva how I was kind of it was annoying that I had to go to sleep uh, just after midnight because I've just read 100 pages of a, of a new book um, I'm very excited about so it starts with usually me reading something and coming into the office and being very excited and uh, speaking about it and then other people getting hopefully very excited about it and that's with the killing kind the character the premise and also the fact that for us as a company we were actively looking for elevated thrillers because of course you have to align the creative with the commercial but we're very much a company leads out of the creative and I think that in the story uh, that Jane Casey's brilliantly written in the book 
there is a character, a story, a premise that is universal. And by very definition, that makes it a global story. And, and one thing to add is that, as Paula outlined, the Ingrid character is really is a successful up-and-coming defence barrister, which could, on the surface, feel like something that is quite specifically British. But actually... This isn't a courtroom drama. This is very much about personal and um, for this character and, and, you know, looking at this tricky relationship she's had with a former client and what happens when one of her colleagues is killed in a road traffic accident and he comes back into her life to try and give her a warning and can she believe him or not? I mean, I think that's something that actually, uh, as women, as humans, as, you know, these are elements that we can all kind of tune into in our own little way, in our own personal lives. And, um, you know, what's brilliant is, obviously, we have uh, a a prior existing relationship with Sony. um, So they get an insight into our slate quite early. But this was something that actually Paula brought up in a conversation, a kind of routine conversation we were having with the, the drama team at Paramount Plus UK and they really tuned into the idea very quickly so it was ironically a very untypical development process for us in that Paula fell in love with the book very quickly we had relatively quick conversations with the author Jane about it you know she responded very well to what Paula had to say and her thoughts on how she wanted to approach the project and so it all came together incredibly quickly Michael quite unusually so from um, you know Paula reading a book and feeling excited to aligning ourselves with Jane and going out and looking first and foremost for who might bring this world to life and Paula had had um, prior conversations with writer director Zara Hayes she reached out to her immediately Zara fell in love with the book too she has um, written the book alongside screenwriter Jonathan Stewart who um, is known for writing thrillers and I think they've done something incredibly interesting with Jane's material and Paramount indicated a, an enthusiasm for the story and for the world, really even before Zara and Jonathan had delivered the first draft, you know, just on, on the premise of the book. And they've been incredibly supportive and incredibly quick with sharing what they felt about it. And so, you know, it feels like it was less than a year ago. It probably is only a year ago about now that, um, that we were all kind of coming together to say, let's do this fantastic project. And so, you know, cuts were only a year later and we're now you know locked two episodes which is really exciting and you know it's gone on a huge journey um from something that you know its treatment could have been a little bit more kind of uk focused and domestic feeling but that's not what zara and jonathan have brought to the project and i think the the elements were always there within jane's book to do something that had you know scale and sit up there against other great international shows um so you know that's very much what we're looking to deliver and you know what's been exciting is that the team at sony responded really really positively to looking at first cut and you know are now now making this one of their kind of key projects for the la screenings which is brilliant Absolutely. And, and you mentioned there that you, you liked what, what Zara and Jonathan had done with Jane's material. I mean, what can you say then about how the, the, the novel has been adapted for the screen? Has it 
is it quite faithful or have you had to take sort of leaps with the story or the structure and and how did you sort of play with that to make what we're going to see on TV? I think one of the greatest compliments a novelist can pay screenwriters and and the producers is to say that they really feel their material has been honoured and that there is a real kind of recognition of that, but that it has been taken to a new place. And Jane Casey very much feels that about The Killing Kind. And that, as I say, is always the aim and and the ambition as as producers. And I think for screenwriters and Zara and Jonathan reading The Killing Kind, certainly like us, we're very excited about Ingrid, the character, and, and this idea of a kind of messed up love story. And transgression and the themes that were in the book that they could make into a compelling drama and, and, and they felt, we felt, could sit in that canon and, and, and feel inspired and alongside those propulsive thrillers, whether that be kind of The Undoing or Anatomy of a Scandal, Big Little Eyes. These shows really that are great character, thrilling, contemporary pieces, but very much tap into something in the zeitgeist. And as Eve referred to, it feels that, you know, particularly, um, you know, it's a big concept, but there's relatability there in Ingrid's story. And going in terms of the ending is always a big conversation, it feels, from book to screen. That feels the biggest conversation that you often have. And certainly that has changed from the book. But again, it remains true and faithful and is in the universe. Uh, and, and Jane is really, really delighted with it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one way to keep people who've read the book on their toes, isn't it? To uh, tweak the ending slightly. And and like you say, yeah. hopefully it sort of yeah. still feels natural to, to uh, a natural endpoint to, to the story that you've told. So um, yeah. forward to that. And making choices, <laughs> making choices from books with, you know, in the, in the pro, you know, what can work brilliantly when you're kind of, you know, on a long haul flight or on the sun lounger doesn't translate well to drama necessarily. And it's just, yes, how you kind of take those elements as inspiration to deliver the best dra- drama and dramatic experience you can. And that's really what has been the ambition. And, and Zara and Jonathan together have done that brilliantly. I mean, Eve can perhaps talk more about Zara as well, particularly as a, as a director, but we're absolutely delighted to have had Zara writing and directing on the show and Jonathan Stewart writing, and also to have had Seth Sinclair, who's come on as well, to write on the show. Um, they're Brits who've been in LA, and it's just been nice to have them back in Blighty um, and writing on the show, which actually is going to go back out to LA. It just feels really lovely. Fantastic. Yeah, what, what was it then? Because uh, I, I personally was a big fan of Show Trial when that aired recently. Um, what was it about Zara Hayes as a director, but then also stepping into to writing, I think, for, for one of the first times? I mean, what was it about her as a, an auteur, perhaps, <laughs> to use a film expression, that you sort of appealed to her on this project and, and working together with her? I think for us, Zara, we, we'd actually started the conversation with Zara prior to Show Trial being aired and had fallen in love with her documentary work um she really asks interesting questions of the world and of the subjects that she's wanting to explore and does it in an incredibly cinematic intelligent but accessible way and so yeah we'd, we'd and actually what i feel she's delivered for the killing kind surpasses even what my expectation based on work of hers that I'd loved based on like you also falling in love with show trial and feeling that it was a really distinctive confident piece of work and I, and I really feel that what she's delivered here again raises the bar for, for the genre and um, you know really kind of 
sets out what she's able to do as a as a talent. I think it's incredibly special. Um, so, you know, it's brilliant, as Paula said, to be able to work with somebody who she is experienced. She's had a whole career in documentary. She, you know, she's worked in feature films and she's bringing all of those elements into a homegrown drama for us on The Killing Pint. Um, so, you know, and I, and I think inevitably when you write as well as direct, you have a different relationship with the material. You know, she feels something at a level of not just the words on the page because obviously she she it is behind the whole intention of what that scene was, you know, when it was originally imagined. So she, she as a writer-director, can bring so much to the table and so much understanding of a character to then be able to kind of really explain to the cast what the intention was. She's directed the first three episodes of the show. Um, episodes four, five, and six have been um, directed by Chanya Button, who actually likewise is also a writer-director, although didn't, in this occasion, write on those scripts. But again, I feel like directors that come from that background just have a slightly different relationship with the material, and that's really interesting. Yeah. She has real vision and integrity, and she's good fun, and she never stops reaching. And I think all those are qualities that we share and that's what's absolutely brilliant about her and I think her and Jonathan are a f- formidable brilliant writing team and as producers your talent keeps reaching and it's your job to facilitate and enable that and of course manage that to get the best on screen both creatively and commercially and um, it feels like it's been a really great team. You mentioned the cast maybe just a word about Emma Appleton who, who stars as Ingrid and, and sounds like she's had a busy schedule making this yeah. and also Colin Morgan who's yeah. kind of returning to the front line of, of leading man status perhaps uh, you know after Merlin and, and a few other projects that we will know him from I mean, what was it like piecing those two together and and how what do they kind of bring to the characters in that sort of relationship that we will see play out over the, the, the series? We worked very closely with the fantastic casting director Daniel Edwards who Zara had a prior relationship with in fact he had cast show card for her um, and it was a really exciting journey actually the opportunity to work with Emma who feels like she's a newer piece of talent um, you know she's rising fast she, she's got this incredible work, work ethic which actually aligns very well with Zara and with myself and with Paula um, you know she puts in 150% at all times and you know for her you can imagine how utterly exhausting that would have been for a schedule where she is in literally every scene um, but actually she found there's a beautiful maturity and um, sexual attraction that her and both Colin have worked very hard to bring to those two roles and intelligence to the characters that, um, you know, it's so exciting when you get to work with people who see, see more in the material than you did, bring more to the table. Again, like Zara and Jonathan are continually reaching throughout the entire process for more to challenge themselves with even greater things. And um, I really feel that when people get to see the first episode, they will, you know, it, it, that central relationship you know inevitably the project lives and dies on it and what they brought to the table is and with um i mean just with uh emma as ingrid in, in almost every scene i mean what can you tell us just about the perspective then of the series are we seeing this story through ingrid's sort of view or 
and and how does that sort of then frame the other characters and I guess particularly Colin's character John I mean do we see things from him his side or is it very much Ingrid's perspective of, of the story as we go through it's entirely Ingrid's perspective <laughs> yeah so sometimes the, the practicals you know having a uh, number one uh, central protagonist and it is their perspective it doesn't it isn't you might think of shows such as The Affair which is a show I loved when that came out and you know that really again is kind of you know, uh, moved the dial on that kind of a story which is a very archetypal story the story of The Affair you know we were seeing it from two perspectives um, this is very much a single perspective from Ingrid's because the central question is to work out whether he is back in her life for good or bad and so with that and that question which hangs over every episode it has to be driven out of her which obviously is brilliant on the page and as as Eve says it lives or dies on the on the performances as well between Emma and Colin because you have to buy into this idea because ultimately whilst it's universal it's relatable in thriller terms it's conceptual it's a big idea which is that some you know that a a woman would do this and you have to go on that journey with the character and and so how was how was filming you mentioned you were filming in Bristol how how was the shoot and and what kind of challenges did you perhaps come up against oh you know late nights um very ambitious sequences um but we had an incredible crew that came together um to support Zara and brought above and beyond the budget and the time allowed to the table to make this as fantastic as possible um we've worked down in Bristol a couple of times it's a really welcoming city it doubles very well for London which meant that while when we were in London we could use that time to really sell where we were um and one of the aspects that we were very excited about bringing to screen is the kind of the world of the ends of court which is something that is kind of rarely rarely seen even as a Londoner born and bred here how many times have I walked through that world probably I can count on two hands you know um and it's so fascinating um so it it was very exciting obviously to be able to shoot there for real um even though we could only be there for a short amount of time um but yeah the shoot went brilliantly um but you know inevitably there were challenges um you know weather as we know is never our friend um although actually Zara Hayes claims to have brilliant uh, friendship with weather and uh, I think I now believe that and indeed Eve actually in in London those blue skies and the shots of London absolutely amazing and I think that's the treat and when you talk also about kind of global and uh, and the picture postcard and obviously we all go back to Richard Richard Curtis and Notting Hill and, 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 and making these postcard images and I think the South Bank has been very photographed and I think that it's done in a brilliant and different way in this show and I think Eve you may want to talk a little more about I think it's circling back to the fact that Zara comes from documentary and when we had that splinter unit that came to London and what they were able to achieve, which really is anchored in as well, the bread and butter of documentary making, isn't it? Um, What they were doing. So very agile, very enterprising and coming at things really creatively within practical parameters. Yeah, and, and, you know, the reality is the smaller that you can make your team, the the more access you can get to incredible places. And and luckily, Zara has a very strong partnership with her director of photography, Matt Gray, who really seems to find the fun and, and the 
creativity in working with that process, but, you know, also bringing to the table an enormous amount of experience, you know, lighting and operating and framing beautifully drama work. So we were very, very lucky and, and you know, it's a, a personal um, highlight for me to be able to work with Matt on this project who I've wanted to work with for, for a long time. So it's yeah. exciting. Fantastic, great, and I mean, just just looking more broadly, I mean, we're we're seeing lots of challenges, you know, over the Atlantic at the moment in in the states with the writers' strike going on. I mean, how are things for you guys at Eleventh Hour? What are you know your feelings about the industry at the moment in terms of you know rising costs and and getting hold of talent? You know, where are your kind of priorities or or the obstacles that you're facing at the moment? Uh, I, I would say we have never ever been busier than we are this year, which is incredibly exciting. Um, making sure that those projects really get the money on screen that they need to be as fantastic as we all know that they can be to, to really fulfill their potential is ever the challenge um you know not shooting things in london realistically does help budgets um, and being clever and creative with the way that you bring things together being very open and honest with your team you know we are lucky that we have a fantastic pool of um crew in this country and people that actually still really care about the projects that they're contributing and you know don't just want to do things on a certain price point so we've been incredibly lucky with all of the shows that we're working on that great people have wanted to come to the table and ultimately that starts with great scripts that's what people get excited about and you know then then you look to overcome the challenges together and and so I mean just finally what what else have you got on your slate I know you're like you say you're very busy and you have have a lot lots on can you give us a, a bit of a tour through what's next we are um currently in post-production on the third series of Alex Ryder for Alison Freeby of the Sony which is very exciting uh we are in week two of shooting on uh, our reimagining of the Inspector Regus books which Gregory Burke has very brilliantly adapted for Bioplay um as their first English language commission and uh, we are, uh, as of yesterday, in pre-production on Moonflower Murders, which is the sequel to Magpie Murders, which um, has recently been airing on BBC One and is available to you on iPlayer. Wonderful show. Um, so, yeah, four productions uh, is keeping us very much out of trouble. And, and I mean, just Magpie Murders, it's, it's had a, a fun journey, hasn't it, to, to end up on the BBC and maybe as a sign of new distribution models that we're seeing as, as the you know broadcasters cut budgets and things. And, and it seems to be we're going back to the old method of uh, distribution windows and, and things like this. Nothing's exclusive for very long, it seems, at the moment. So how, how did that just... How have you seen that journey from uh, Magpie Murders come from Brickbox and and then land on the BBC? It's uh, and they've recommissioned the series and and ordered the spin off So it's uh it's it's been quite a fun sort of uh, example, perhaps, of, of what might we might, we might see in the future. I think that I think what's interesting about this moment in time is that there are so many different ways of funding shows. So Alex Ryder likewise has a very different funding model that you're probably aware of. Initially, it was a spec commissioned by Sony. So again, a kind of really brave. Um, 
um, kind of experiment by them, I suppose, that I, now you would argue well, we're in Series 3, so it must have been successful. And likewise, um, Magpie Murders was, was a, a different model. Um, we had an existing relationship with PBS already, who were effectively the main commissioner on that show. Uh, we'd worked with them for a number of years uh, on Foil's Wall, and they were, you know, very aligned uh, and enthusiastic Anthony Horowitz fans. So they came into the mix for that very early on. And then, as you say, times are changing. So what was a, a pre-sale to Brickbox has a limited window of time and has now turned into a, a, a relationship with the BBC, which is really fantastic for the show. I can only comment really as the show's number one fan or, you know, one of them, that I so enjoyed watching it again over the Easter when it when it launched and being able to watch it with my family and the fun of it and, you know, my 10-year-old really engaging with the murder mystery element in it and, you know, trying to second guess who, who had killed um, uh, the, the, the author within the show and, you know, the sort of cleverness of the format. I mean, I just think it's what's interesting is that there's so many different places to get shows made now. You know, likewise, working with Buy and Play on Rebus is a really exciting journey for us. You know, a new player in the UK. I mean, that, that's what really kind of, you know, actually makes the financing of a show as creative as, as actually producing it. Yeah, I think, and there's always going to be challenges throughout life. You know, there's always challenges in the in any industry and in our industry, but there's always opportunities. And I think, you know, remaining passionate, agile, and entrepreneurial, and having good symbiosis between the creative and commercial facets of your company is really, you know, where the way to go with it. And getting up every day and loving it and having fun. ITV Studios moved into distribution of Australian scripted series several years ago with the acquisition of Stan comedy drama Bump, which it subsequently went on to sell around the world. Last year, the company went a step further and took a majority stake in Lingo Pictures, maker of series including Lambs of God, Upright and The Secrets She Keeps, plus new titles After the Party and Erotic Stories. ITV Studios Executive Vice President of Global Content Julie Meldell-Johnson spoke to Neil Beatty about the appeal of Australian programming and its growing popularity on the global stage. I think we just really noticed the growing creativity that the Australian production community is, is going through. They were one of the first markets up and running out of COVID. I think Bump was outside of our soaps was our first scripted show. You know, the camera started rolling in post lockdown. The script was smart, funny, touching, sophisticated. We just just fell in love with it. At that time, I don't think we had an an Australian strategy as such. And we're not sure whether it was COVID, but there seems to be a lot of the, the talent that had drained away that had moved to the UK or Hollywood seems to be going back to Australia and wanting to work in Australia again. I think that's really helped. So, yeah, what what started as just an opportunistic falling in love with one show, I think, has become a strategy now. We really like what we're seeing out of there. We really like the content. Uh, we really like the people. It's, it's a sort of blossoming production community over there. Uh, lots of independent producers. Always really interesting slates. Mm. I was talking to uh, Dermot Horan from RT 
PPE. And he said initially they looked at Australia and New Zealand, as you mentioned, because of the COVID angle. And they saw a lot of great shows from there. So it's it's almost um it's almost a bit of good fortune that the, the kind of the, the spotlight shone on Australia for that that reason. And it's it's brought to light a lot of great projects. What makes Australian drama and comedy unique? What are they kind of doing that other countries perhaps aren't? The wonderful thing about working for an international company and working with producers from all over the world is that you do tap into different cultures and each culture does have its own rhythm and its own points of difference, its own outlook on life that differs slightly from ours. I mean, not that, you know, Britain is is homogenous in any way whatsoever, but there is a difference. It it benefits from commonality of language. And I think being in the English language that is understood without subtitles in the US, UK, South Africa, nor in the Nordics, they don't even really use the subtitles there. The English is so good. That immediately improves the travability of it, as it were. But there's something about what the shows we're seeing that in a way dials into what you imagine as Australian, which is colour, sunshine, some positivity and that side of things. But there's also some there's some parts of it that you wouldn't necessarily think of as you know typically Australian. Um, some of the shows we've got coming from them all have got have very serious tone to them, quite different approach to things. And Lingo's anthology that they're making for SBS, which we're distributing, Erotic Stories, is it's something that you wouldn't you know would not be out of place coming out of HBO. So it's not it's not necessarily Australian. It's just really really good. It's a no punches pulled you know look at sexuality with diversity right at its core so it's, it's it's not necessarily Australian it's just really really good. Would you say that Australian content can can quite easily compete with UK and US content? I think it can yes and and and, and the interesting thing about it is it's not just in one genre it's not just like they're doing half our comedies really well although they've had some great ones um, one of the ones we don't have Colin from a cat you know there's some, they're, they're doing half our comedies really well but they're also doing the, the half our dramedy really well you know we've boarded projects that are very blue sky quite broad appeal crime series that we've got very high hopes for really excited about them and we've got a, a crime thriller that i think is you know quite unashamedly trying to be a sort of australian line of duty and in human error from roadshow coming so it you know it seems to be a market that is developing and producing in quite different genres at c21 we heard a lot of westerns australian westerns which i'm very excited to see one one of those as a new genre potentially coming out so do you think this is new development that they've suddenly started producing all of this great content or do you think it's been going on a while and we've just not not really kind of recognized it until now i think it's something of an explosion and they and that's what they say too that the producers working there feel it they're feeling like their golden era is is suddenly upon them so i, I don't it hasn't been overnight it's been over the last two or three years but i don't think it's been 15 you know i don't think it's been 10 years it does feel like it's something of the now and you know, creativity sparks other creativity and and you, you know you suddenly find that everyone's got the same a rising tide sort of raises all ships and there is that real feeling of genuine excitement and, and buzziness and attracting really great talent both behind the camera and on screen that's just really upping the ante and, and, and i think you know creativity is creativity but funding you know does also help and having decent budgets behind shows does really help what's on screen too and you know the new funding from when when Screen Australia and all that was reorganised and 
extra money given to both development as well as production, I think has really, really helped as well. And then once, you know, once international distributors spot you and can come with their checkbox, that, that it helps improve budgets as well. Yeah. And what are the budgets like over there? Because we all know that production costs have soared in the last year yeah. or two years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, it, is it generally cheaper to make content down in Australia with, with the funding or just the, the whole economy of the, the continent? Yes, it, it is cheap. It is cheaper, um, less expensive, let's say. It's also on the up. It's also increasing. Uh, I think, you know, the same factors that triggered it here, the incentives are great, but it attracts, you know, the big streamers and Hollywood studios. So, you know, we're starting to hear producers there with the same complaints as producers in the UK and Germany and Norway that the, the crews are so much harder to get. You're having to pay people to do jobs at or two jobs above what they're qualified to do. You know, it's, it's getting it's getting harder and more expensive, but it's still comparatively for the quality that you have on screen. It is um you know, pure numbers terms, less expensive at the moment than the UK and the US. Sure, sure. And where have you found that Australian content has sold well? Which territories has it reached that seem to appreciate it more than others at the moment? Well, quite, well, quite widely. And, um, you know, so so Bump, we sold to the CW, for example, in the US. Um, we think our, our crime thrillers and everything will do quite well in the US. Our comedy spreadsheet did really well in Europe. They really appreciate, really appreciated it. And then I think, you know, there's some shows in there that, could, that really could be, you know, global shows as well that could work really well for a streamer. And again, because we've partnered in with on quite different genres, uh, it's not really one one size fits all. It's they're, they're quite, you know, they're quite different. And, um, you know, they've got the ability to work all around, really. OK. What kind of feedback have you had from the people buying the the content? What Have they said much about why they particularly like these projects? What I think there's a feeling that there's something a bit different about them. They feel fresh. Uh, you know, most broadcasters are looking for things that stand out and feel distinctive. I think that there's a, there's a general feeling that it's, there's a quality there. So I think it's that. I think the the look and feel of them, they, it fit, there's a premium feel to it. There's a, a wit to them and a pacing that our clients like. They're generally quite well paced. They, they don't tend to be slow. How about Lingo in particular? What do they offer ITBS? What would you say their assets and skill sets are? They've got incredibly diverse slate. It's really exciting. They are machines for, for a small company. Their output is extraordinary. They're really wonderful people, which really helps when you're bringing someone into the family. It's, it's really nice when they're lovely people. They're really smart. And each show, you know, each of their series that they have on their slate feels different, feels premium, ambitious. So it's it's, it's really exciting. I'm, you know, my one complaint is that I um I don't get to distribute all of their series. When we uh, invested them and when we bought them, we were working with them independently already on on a show. But you know, a lot of their slate has, has been given to different distributors. Sure, sure. What what are your favourite projects that they've they've done? Which what which ones do you particularly rate? Well, the the secret she keeps. And what was it about? that that you enjoyed it's the quality of it love the story uh-huh. and yeah. can, can you tell me more about the projects that they're going to be undertaking for itvs i mean look, roughly yeah. how many per year do you hope to yield from this well we've had seven titles so far i think in the last couple of years um bump is obviously multiple seasons and a spin-off in year of um from lingo they're very very busy but we've just got two titles from it at the moment but hopefully lots more coming the two series we've got from them are quite different after the Party is a mini-series. It's, it's designed to sort of be a complete story. And it's a fascinating, beautifully crafted uh, story that I think will, has a potential to really spark a global conversation. 
it pinpoints it to some of our deepest fears, which is the vulnerability of our children and the, the feeling of powerlessness in the face of injustice. It's also an exploration of female rage, which we don't see very often. Uh, it's a really intriguing female lead. You know, it's set, set in a quite picturesque location. It starts off when she sees this woman secretly canoeing and she spray paints a, a ship that she doesn't like. She's an eco-warrior. She's an incredible teacher, but she's got this burning inside of her because she, um, she's she di- been divorced five years. And the reason behind that is she thinks she saw her husband do something awful at a teenage party. He swears what she thinks she saw she was not seeing, uh, but she doesn't believe him. The town and the police do believe him and he comes back to town is the trigger of the of the series it's definitely very powerful it's also entertaining it's a very serious stories and very dark themes but told in a entertaining way uh, so we're very excited about that one and then erotic stories is a commission from sbs that lingo lingo got it's an anthology of sex stories but it, very very different no holes barred definitely very frank intimate each story is very different and explores uh, a different theme but it's got diversity right at the heart of it uh sexual identity disability and really not to, not in a tick box way but really just looking at the heart of people's souls and the heart of what make people what makes people work what makes people excited and fearful it's really different wow <laughs> definitely erotic um yeah and then, but then from village roadshow we've got a really wonderful crime thriller human error that'll launch later this year uh very fast-paced thrilling you know twisty turny crime thriller not quite ever quite, quite sure whose whose side you should be on um we're launching north shore which we've worked uh with the davids from beach road pictures it's their first drama in their new production company our lovely mike bullen has written it it's commissioned by paramount plus in the uk and australian we're distributing the rest of the world and it's a uk cop goes out to sort of keep an eye on a case because the murder victim is a is the daughter of a political high flyer uh, who's played by joanne froggett and um he yeah it solves the case it's it's blue sky it's a really interesting crime story it's serialized set in sydney uh it looks great it's the first uh, crime story mike's written but it's all the mike bullen that we love in terms of the character and the the, the humanity of of the characters but on a, you know with a really really good Good crime story giving it its engine and what else year of is a spin-off of bump it's coming it's quite a, a ya quite a different feel but set in the universe of the high school and hopefully lots more coming cool cool and we've talked about scripted quite a bit are you are you looking at unscripted over there as well like formats and um that oh yeah we do regularly i mean obviously uh, david mott's you know uh, business over there itv studios australia is thriving it's going from strength to strength it's doing really really well on the on the shiny floor shows on the formats he and his team have also had a real focus on factual so we've seen seeing, seeing some really nice factual shows coming out of out of them and um funny enough our natural history journey started really five years ago with an australian show a, a co-production between oxford scientific and northern pictures magical land of oz and we invested in that show it was a three-parter it did really well for us we loved having it and since then we you know we've continued our, our natural history investment obviously culminating with our investment in plimsoll at the end of last year and and our first Australian comedy script spreadsheet scripted comedy was from Northern Pictures their scripted arm from from Catherine's team I'm working on a couple of things with them as well what kind of impact do you think uh, streaming platforms have, have made in Australia well I think I I think the they're part of I think they are part of the the content explosion I think having streamers like Stan who are a single territory streamer but, but a streamer nonetheless they're commissioning different things 
Paramount Plus, um, I think is an interesting commissioner there. And like ITVX here in the UK, having that streamer that's important to a business means a show that can could be 10 or could be Paramount Plus, you know, could be ITV main channel, or could be ITVX, and how you can tweak it a bit to be more streamer friendly without sometimes the constraints of a linear schedule is really interesting and gives commissioners flexibility and allows producers to just develop really great shows and then find find where they fit as opposed to you know just developing for a single target. I think quotas sound like they might be on on the way. So yeah, I, think- I was just going to ask about quotas because that's that's been so so important across Europe in so many times, hasn't yeah. it? To keep a certain percentage of. Yeah, local- I, I have no special political insight, Neil, but I think that the, the chat is that that it's not unlikely. I think that some some kind of quotas will be in place, and the streamers will need to invest more in Australia. You know, and a Netflix commission, global Netflix commission, you know, is great for the production. They, they've been active there for a while. I mean, there's been several Australian commissions. Though we obviously don't touch those uh, as a distributor but i think the incentives there's an international flavor in the australian production scene that's been there for several years now and i think you know i think the streamers have played a part in that for sure final question obviously we've been talking about australia quite a bit but do you have your eyes on any other territories that you feel could be the next up-and-coming region to bring bring a lot of great content out it doesn't sound too different but we're seeing some really great scripts coming out of france and we've got some thrillers that we're seeing that feel European but international at the same time. Yeah, I think we're quite excited about the, the development we're seeing from, from Tetra. Um, for new to us is is German content with Maritz Polter and Windlight that we, you know, established last year or the year before. Um, you know, he's got such a great, inter- you know, such a great international vision um, and the ability to produce and, and execute really, you know, global shows. So we're quite excited about that. We've got our our first series from him nights in paradise from this year but he's he's on fire and he, he's got so many things buzzing um i think between the nordics the uk the us france germany some really great things really great things out of italy and spain too australia and new zealand quite a few indian producers quite different there but would love to find a way of doing co-production there canada again is we we've got a great series coming out of canada but that's not new i don't think Julie Meldall-Johnson speaking with Neil Beatty. Julie is among the speakers taking part in C21's Content LA, which takes place on May the 18th and 19th at the Fairmont Century Plaza, alongside the LA Screenings Independence. If you're attending, we look forward to seeing you there. If not, there'll be plenty of news, views and audio interviews from the event on c21media.net, c21fm and in the podcast next Friday. In the meantime, that's all for this episode. My name's Jonathan Weddale. Thanks for listening.